Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. On this special episode, we are excited to bring you Volume 3 of Ted and Fred's Excellent Adventure. In this episode, Professor Carrick answers questions submitted by our scholars, including what his favorite bedside tests are, how he chooses the therapies that he uses with his patients, and gait observation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Dr. Freddy Garcia, and we're here with Professor Carrick, and we are back on Ted and Fred's Excellent Adventure. This will be volume uh, three, I guess, and we have uh, more questions. And Professor, are you ready? Yes, I am. Good to see All you, right. Good to see you. Always a pleasure. All right, let's see here. Uh, somebody did ask, did comment, uh, Professor Carrick, you're beautiful. What sort, of, what sort of skincare products do you recommend? I swear to you, that's a real question. <laughs> I, I, I told them they could ask anything. This is, this is what they submitted. They said, you are beautiful. With an exclamation point, not even a period for a statement. They really wanted you to know that you are beautiful. Well, you know, I mean, brilliant question. A good observation. Boy, I could really have fun with that one, couldn't I? Like I take a lemon I have no idea. Well, thank you. All right. We'll get to, we'll get to a different Irish question. Spring. Irish spring. Irish spring. So that's your lovely smell. That's amazing. All right. What's uh, here's a good one. I think that's crazy fun. What is something related to neurology that you once believed to be well-established and widely accepted that either yourself or another researcher has now proven to be false and replaced by a newly accepted axiom? That's a great question. Boy, there are a lot of them, but one of the biggest one is uh, after concussion and rest. Um, when I, you know, started in this clinical game, it was standard that if you got your bell rung and you had a severe concussion that you just rested, you know, turned the lights off and, and let things go. And, th- and up to very recently, that really was sort of the standard. And um, I just didn't like that. It never made sense to me because, um, you know, I've had, you know, some <laughs> you talked to me for a few minutes and know I've had some, some head trauma too, but uh, getting back up into the game was always very important for me and for patients. So I was conservatively aggressive where I would take patients and get them doing things, you know, right away. So we would have patients that could hardly walk and I have them on the ice within a, a couple of days. The results were, were phenomenal. So the consensus, um, and I'm not saying it's directly, attributable to what I've done, but I can tell you, uh, looking at, you know, our history of what people have done and what we've done, there's been a big change. And now in research, there's great comparisons between the early introduction of aerobic exercise and and other concomitants. And that idea of rest is just not cool. Same thing happened with low back. Uh, When I started, if you hurt your back, they put you in in bed rest, you know, for a couple of weeks. And that's something that, uh, that we have never done and our results were phenomenal. When I started practice, there was no evidence-based or evidence-informed aspect for anything that I do, even musculoskeletal. There were no good studies for low back or neck, especially with manipulation. Those are coming. If you wait for all the things to come, you're you're gonna be dead. Um, So observations, making common sense activities. So the idea of rest uh, is something. Years ago, people would have a, a surgery and they'd stay in bed or live a ba- deliver a baby. They'd stay in bed. Now, 
my gosh, the kid is out and the mom is up and, you know, they're getting them to move and walk and try to get home. Or if you've had a, a major surgery, you're up and you're walking. So um, this movement and exercise has been a great paradigm shift from the things that we, that we thought of before. And I think that's revolutionized the treatment of neurological syndromes, whether it be, you know, walking and Tai Chi exercises to uh, prevent uh, um, dementia or Alzheimer's disease and bicycle riding, you know, with Parkinson's and things like that. So movement, not resting, getting up. And of course, in our job, movement is, is almost central to, to most of the things we do. If the joints can't move well in, in what we call these kinematic chains, there are consequences so that's been revolutionary just a few years ago and i think we're going to find more things like that. there's a whole load of other things but we go on for the rest of our days i think that's pivotal excellent uh, i'm glad you mentioned kinematic change because i think the next question after this one we'll kind of go into that but, but first i have one that i think is a pretty good question they said professor carrick if you only had five bedside tests you could use which ones would they be and why? And they also wanted to know, what are your top five therapies you love to use? So let's, let's go bedside tests first. If you could only have five. I, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. It's a good question. That's very tough. Well, I can answer that really easy on the, the top five tests if every patient that I saw had exactly the same presentations. And quite frankly, what is really the top five for you, if you're my patient, and the person next to you might be completely different. So some people demand different things. But the top, top, top ones, of course, you know, blood pressure is really a super important test. I think the pupillary light response is just a must that I really, you know, go to. And now we've got the, that pupillary uh, light reflex app that's so cheap. Yeah, PLR app, yeah. That's amazing. And I think that's just really a, you know, a big, big uh, come home to. One of the best tests that you can ever imagine is not doing any tests, but just looking at somebody. Uh, that is, to me, 90% of the, the battle, whether uh, their their degree of blink responses have decreased, uh, whether they have a type of hypomemia, their spontaneous aspects of smiling, uh, when they're walking into the room, is there a difference in an arm swing or not? Is their gait parameters different? What is their stride length? So I, I would say that the best tests are not doing a test and just observing the, the function of an individual uh, patient. I like to look at their intake forms, the way they sign their, uh, their name, you know, looking at, uh, especially with our older people, are there, is their handwriting getting smaller? Is there a diminution? Things that we see classically in Parkinson's. You can see a tremor on somebody's signature. You know, even before you see them, you can give you an idea of things that are, uh, are happening but again observations are the best but the big thing you know blood pressure the pupillary light response is really really super i like to look in the eyes uh, for me it's indispensable i like to see the caliber of the vessels uh, really good with the variety of diseases but also just looking at va uh, ratios and and things like that 
if you had to pick something that you wanted to see someone do is like, can you stand up for me? Let's see how they can get out of a chair. If they can get out of a chair without using their hands in that, usually they don't have a whole lot of things that are so wrong, which means their nervous system is basically uh, functioning. They can stand up without falling down. Uh, they're not a toxic. That's a great test. And, and of course, we formalize it like, you know, how many times can you stand up and down over 30 seconds? We've got normative aspects. We've got the tug, which is a timed up and go test and other things that when people have a little difficulty or if you see them, they've got a lurch forward or they have some balismus or, or so that's going to give you a little more of a, an inkling. Uh, one of the great tests, again, in regards to observation is the color of their skin, their lips, their nail beds, you know, are they cyanotic? Uh, is there a difference here from one side to the to the other? And all of the aspects that you see, you know, with, from facial paresis or paresis of arms to the presence of an involutional tremor. Uh, again, it's an observational aspect. I love reflexes. Um, and uh, again, motor strength, uh, it's really easy. You know, can you move your arms up and down? Can they move against gravity? It gives me almost everything I need rather than saying, you know, what is the difference between my right side and left side to quantify it? So that type of observational uh, uh, constraints, you know, and, and just the, the interrelationship. Do they seem with it? Do they have a good affect? Do they respond to your questions well. Almost the mini mental state examination that we get, are they gonna get 30 on it? Are you gonna know pretty well when you're talking uh, to people? And also one of the biggest part of the examination that many people forget is to talk to the people that love these people. Um, in my job, uh, have you seen any changes? You know, the personality changing with them. You know, the, yeah, they're not, you know, they don't wanna get out of bed anymore. Sometimes they'll come in and they'll tell you different things. When we look at the top, I think you said top five therapies. Mm -hmm. And the top therapy for me always, without exception, is therapy that is directed towards uh, autonomic integrity, uh, which is cardiovascular mm -hmm. sort of integrity. That's emergent. You know, people can die, uh, you know, if, if you do things inappropriately, if they're massively hypertensive, or so many of the things that we'd like to do, we may not be able to do until that becomes under control. So some therapies I wouldn't do, I would send uh, to a colleague that would have a greater expertise or needed a different type of pharmacokinetic type of intervention. So the first therapy is preservation of life, which is you know airway, breathing, cardio, respiratory. It's always, always on my mind. Um, and then uh, I'd look at the functional autonomic system and look at integrity, whether it be, you know, what happens on their tilt table for them. Everyone has seen, you know, this where you get somebody, you put the table up to get them to turn over and, you know, they become, uh, they have dysautonomia and they're not getting blood and you found it that way. You should find it before that, that time, of course. So autonomic types of testing, whether uh, you're using grip strength dynamometer for dysautonomia. I'm really careful to, to look at that. And then when I look at the, the top you know, get-to therapies are dependent upon what the patient wants. So when you see me, oftentimes there's a whole load of comorbidities. I will always ask the people, like, what do you 
want me to do for you? If you could pick something that you wanted me to do, what would it be? And they, they tell me what they want. And I would say that nine times out of 10, it would be different from what I would think they would want. You get some people, they can't walk or they've got this, and that's not what they want to get better. They want to be able to hold a fork or it, it, they're all, it, it's different. So the therapies that I choose are always in a hierarchical distribution to the patient's desire or their expectation. And that's always served me well to serve them well. So there are some therapies in a certain patient, people say, gee, why didn't you do this? You think, well, because that type of thing would not be in concert with what they want. Maybe we'll get to it, maybe we won't, but let me do this individual uh, type of therapy. We deal with um, head injury with patients that are sent from around the world. So a lot of the things that I do have relationships to eyes, head, vestibular movement. Uh, and that type of conjoined therapy is something that I think are, are just you know instrumental. And I put that as one. Uh, I don't look at vestibular rehab differently or out of sync with what I would do for uh, neck movement. In other words, I can't get someone to do uh, times viewing if their neck isn't intact or or vice, or, or vice versa. And then uh, therapies that are really important uh, and have always been are uh, exercise. Uh, are we going to do it aerobically? We know we get a better bang for our buck with a concentric loaded exercise than we do or rather with an eccentrically loaded exercise and a concentrically loaded. So little wee things from stepping down from a stair or so are really uh, super important to not only get people's athleticism up, but to, to look at their general health. And uh, many of the therapies that we like to do are things that people can do at home. I've always been a big fan of making people autonomous so that they're not dependent upon me. But I also don't want them to do things that are not appropriate. So sometimes you can get people to do a whole load of stuff that really can complicate things. So I like them to do things under my direction. For instance, um, if you're looking at somebody that are, that are doing you know, fast eye movements to a target, I don't like them to do that at home until they're efficient at it. Uh, so I won't say, okay, go and do these exercises on your own until they can do what I want them to do at different focal lengths. And then maybe I'll give them that to do. Um, but oftentimes they don't need to do it by the time that, that comes. So functional exercises where I'll get somebody who's a skater to do some gaze stabilization when they're skating and things like that. I think that manipulation of joints is really central to what I do. Uh, and I think that central relationships of putting it in my top uh, parameters of therapies is such that I do it uh, with skill that I've developed. I'm very comfortable with that skill. And I don't do anything that I'm not skilled at. So that is something, and it's also something that is unique that other people in general don't, don't offer. And uh, some of they offer don't do it to, to my personal level of skill. So I like that. And I make a big difference um, in regards to people's health with, uh, with joint manipulation. That, you know, if you've, if you've had uh, an, an adjustment by somebody who's really skilled at it, 
it really for people is is miraculous because things just feel different whether it's decreasing in nociception or increased fluidity but all of the other things that haven't been shown with research you know different feelings of satisfaction and well-being changes in autonomic system and other things they're going to tell you uh, about this and then there's risk factors that you are going to uh, take into account but that's one of the one of the big ones I think for um, for me and then one of your biggest therapies or my biggest therapy is letting people know that I care about them personally and that um, I care about, you know, the, the timing. I'll give you an example. You've been with me. Sometimes people, well, they'll wait for, you know, a couple of years to get an appointment, which is sad. But once they get in, they may be waiting for hours in the office before they get to see me. They may have an appointment at 11 and they may not get seen till three. And you go like, well, what the heck have you been doing? You know, uh, well, they know very quickly that sometimes if somebody needs more time than I've allotted, they're gonna get it. In other words, if they, they've had their time with me is say 15 minutes and I need an hour, they're gonna get that hour. So people know that. And as a consequence, I never get complaints um, anyways, to me, uh, but even to staff that they have to wait the first time sometimes, but as soon as they, they're in that environment. So I make sure that they know that uh, I'm theirs and that I care about them and that I'm going to do my best for them. And that if I can't do something that's really great, then they're gone. I'm going to tell them that we failed on them. I'm very honest. Uh, and I, it's really interesting because patients, oftentimes don't want to get fired. They come in and they're going, how am I doing? Because, you know, maybe he's not going to keep me. And I, when I treat patients or attend them, I don't treat them so that I can make them lifelong patients and, and see them. My goal is to see them as little as possible. That's better for them. They become very vulnerable to what I can do. So I work very diligently to see improvement. And if I don't see improvement and they don't see improvement, then they're gone. So I think that honesty, that integrity of uh, caring is very important in my treatment parameter. I take that time to establish that meaningful bond. Um, I don't give them a spiel. Uh, they know. I look at them in their eyes. I sort of hold them with my soul. And uh, they know that um, I'm the right person for them. I oftentimes will see a patient and it just doesn't feel good. Uh, you get people sometimes, you know, you get to say, well, you know, I've been to all these guys. I figure I'd give you a shot and everything. <laughs> That's great. Hey, look, you know, I'm probably not the right person for you um, if, if I don't like them or if, you know, there's something that doesn't mix well. And you know what it means. Sometimes it doesn't go. Then, I, I, you know, I can't help them. It's not going to it's not going to do well. And I refer them usually to someone I don't like so well. <laughs> You know, let them share the pain. But that's that happens. Usually throughout the interview, people will come over to your side. But a lot of times, they're just people, it just doesn't fit, you know? And, and we see patients like this, and I'll tell them, so look, it doesn't fit. And they'll say, okay, well, what can I do to change? I mean, I, you get this all the time because they know you're going to fire them. And they hear the stories because other patients go, oh, man, you know, hopefully you can make the cut. <laughs> Because there's, you know, a hundred people out there in the waiting room that would love to have your your position. So there, there it is. You know, Professor, it's uh, it's funny you mentioned that because you're right. Before I started doing grand rounds, 
I'd never heard of a doctor ever ask the patient, what would you like for me to do for you? You know, I think healthcare has become a very mechanical thing. You kind of get shuffled in and they shuffled out. I once remember a doctor left and I was, the doctor left and I was waiting there for the doctor to come in. The nurses, you know, wrapping me up, you know, finishing, asking me questions, whatever. I go, I have a question for the doctor. They go, oh, the doctor left for the day. I go, how can that be? You, you, you know, it's like, they're just done. They didn't ask me what I wanted. They just kind of do what they have to do. So I've always admired you, admired you for that. Uh, I want to go back to the beginning when they talked about the assessments. Yeah. Um, so when I'm teaching some of the clinical neuroscience courses for the Carrick Institute, and we start teaching examination skills, um, and you mentioned how observation is really what, like the ultimate bedside test for you. I always tell people or the scholars attending, I go, listen, Dr. Professor Carrick is an expert because while he's doing a reflex and assessing that, he's truly observing what's going on with the rest of the patient. So I've been in grand rounds. And I've been, uh, I've been the knucklehead where you say, you know, Garcia, did you see this when I did this? And I'm, no, I, I didn't, you know? So you're doing a reflex at the knee and then somebody's shoulder goes. And, and, and so it, you really taught me about real observation, not this micro observation. I mean, sure, you wanna assess, you wanna really observe what you're testing, but really noticing what's going on in the rest of the patient. Um, you taught me about how you would communicate from one side of the patient to the other, uh, just to see their eyes deviate one way and how you were observing their skin. If it was becoming flush, how you would use humor to see if they would have, uh, changes in their, uh, voice in their face with expression, um, having their eyes be positioned to the left or right and what was going on. That to me was very eye opening as a clinician. And something that I think when people are watching and reviewing tape of you doing your work, they're not, they're not observing all the things that you are observing. And I think that's the difference between a novice and an intermediate and intermediate and then eventually an expert. So I think it's, I think it's beautiful that you talked about observation because that is what I think elevates people when they really understand observation. You know, you're right on it. Sometimes you, you hear someone say, well, I went to this really famous doctor and the guy didn't do anything. And you go, oh, you, you poor fool. Uh, they probably did a lot because sometimes it's done. But you're right. Like, I'll look at somebody and you'll watch me and I'll, I'll walk to the right side. I go to the left side. I'm seeing how they follow me. I don't have to go like my hands here, hands here. I'm looking at it. Then I compare what I see there to what I see on the volitional or the involitional to the volitional. But the examination is very robust. And I think if we... For me, uh, I think the best thing is to keep your hands off them. Keep your hands off them until you know what this person is, uh, especially with the movement or disorders that we see, you know, how much is involutional, what happens when you talk. You get some people going to come in with, with tremors and you'll start, you know, talking to them. You're looking and you go to one side, all of a sudden the tremor will decrease, you understand, you know, hemianopial stimulation, you've already got an edge on things. And then people are observing, all of a sudden they'll see me come up and I'll do something this side here, and then they go, how the heck did he know how to do this? Well, because he already was talking to the to the guy, he, he's got a good idea of what's happening. So um, I think that's the biggest thing is like step back, like when you know your job, you wanna jump in and do the test. Well, if you can hold back, and see if you can figure out what's wrong with the person without touching them. This is marvelous. 
So look at what we've got right now with this COVID. We've got this telemedicine uh, thing where people now are talking to their patients and having to realize that they can't, you know, pop in and look at this reflex, but they can get someone to bend their arm and leg. They can look at spasticities. They can do a variety of things. And the outcomes, the reports that, that, that I have from my colleagues, and these are colleagues, you know, in medicine and different areas that patients, they feel it. They, they, they feel almost a more empathic nature. And you can't be like a jerk and they come in and then be empathic in your office and then go out and then be the jerk again. You either have empathy for people or you don't have it. And if you don't have it, then healthcare is probably not for you. Uh, or and you can see people, you know, they 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 almost defraud the universe because they're not empathic people. They get it, and then it's like you know the the crap, you know the or you, the you hate to say conning patients, but you know you go through and you you know you do this, boom boom, you're gonna scope your knee, and you're thinking about you know being on the golf course or something like that. So. Um, I think empathy is, is really important. Observations are great. So your top, top, top thing is ob observation. And right. do the examination without your hands. You know, if, if I wasn't a guess, if I was, because I was already kind of making a list in my head, and I thought for sure you were going to, one of the first ones you're going to say was going to be observing gait. Because I know you are a master of observing gait. And you have taught us, including me, how important it is and how much information there is. And, I, and I'm still learning about gait. Like I, every time I learn something new, I am astounded at how valuable it is as an assessment, uh, which leads me to this next question. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. This is a specific to gait. They say, Professor Carrick, can you give us some insight regarding the significance of heel strike? You've spoken many times about its importance and would love to hear about what happens at the moment where our body tries to win over against gravity what control mechanisms are required what are the most common failures and how does a well integrated system benefit from the various stimuli associated with a successful heel strike and uh they put their name on this one that one comes from dr russ fornstein dr russ is awesome so it's good to see a question from him uh tell us about heel strike boy that's the rest of our life sort of a question um heel strike is is super important when you look at gait you can divide it into single stance phase, double stance phases, swing phases, and things like that. So when you look at heel strike, basically is the termination of a swing and the ability to, uh, to accept gravity on the heel rather than a flat foot is a whole constellation of discussions. But here it is, the, the faster you walk, or from walking to running, the greater the amount of force will uh, be occurred when you end your stride. So if you're running and you can imagine, boom, you're gonna have a greater amount of force. Or when individuals can't accept a greater amount of uh, force, usually their stride is less, or their stride may be less if they can't balance themselves in, in regards to swing, or a variety of other types of concomitants. But at the basis of it is that the heel strike is a significant portrayal of the acceptance of force. It's different than the push-off, which is the transferring, and not plyometrically or so, but the pushing off generating force, 
the heel strike accepting force. And when you accept these forces, you cause a perturbation of your head largely because you strike it, you have a shock wave, if you can think of it that way, that goes all the way up to your head and it causes you to be like a little bubble head. So every time you hit the ground, it comes up so much that an average person, not an athlete, just someone that's having a little stroll in the park talking to their neighbor is going to bobble their head or have a perturbation of about 0.5 hertz up to 5 hertz which means oscillations you know per per minute if you're running you're going to have 20 hertz oscillations so heel strike is really important to look at the how the uh, how the body accepts the force and if you don't have a good uh, vestibular ocular response and you have a very dynamic heel strike, then your head will bobble. And if your eyes can't maintain focus, things are going to become a little blurry for you. So you're not going to do it. You're going to walk slower. So we want to look at speed, the length of stride, uh, a heel strike with somebody who strikes their heel just at the, the level of the length of the other foot is markedly different than a heel strike that's, you know, two feet or two foot lengths ahead of that. A heel strike when somebody is walking where the heel, uh, the heel should be in line. So heel, heel, heel. That heel strike is different than a heel strike that is off of a central line. A heel strike with someone who has a circumduction gait or somebody who has a, a perineal nerve lesion, somebody's got a little bit of a foot drop, or somebody who's got an abnormal hip mechanism where they have to swing their foot in to accept uh, that strike will be seen with a different wobble or a different change in their, in their hip. So without you know, making people completely confused and thinking that my answer is worthless to Russ or somebody else, heel strike is dependent upon where the where the heel came from so that a, a heel strike in a central line gives a different parameter of windows from a heel strike coming up so if we look at ankle knee hip uh, kinematics if you if you swing your foot over and you strike your foot coming in with a medial aspect that torsion on your knee is markedly different than if you came in in a scissors type of a fashion so um, it's important for so many different varieties, which is why we spend so long talking about it in detail, but it is not part of human gait kinematics that can be taken out of the, out of the hole. So when we look at gait, we look at heel strike, push off, swing, single phase, double phase, time, cadence, and all of these parameters together. And that's how you need to understand gait, not by taking one of this infinite numbers of components out. You need to look at what's happening with the arm, what's happening with the head orientation, what happens with their mouth, uh, what happens when they dual task, all of these other sort of things. But taking it right down, the heel out of everything else is that one moment in human existence where the body is accepting a force and not generally just accepting it and the consequence of that force can be just you know phenomenal it can result like if you if something hurts you're gonna you're not gonna strike so well you're gonna you know have a flexor reflex afferent and and other things so 
the way a person accepts heel strike can tell you what's happening in their ankle, their knee, their hip, their low back, their shoulders, their head from a biomechanical uh, standpoint. Uh, if they're in line, the way they accept force can tell you a lot about their cerebellum. It can tell you a lot about their basal ganglia. They can tell you a lot about the tonus of muscles. If you can't swing your leg forward, your heel's not going to be striking. If you've got really tight hamstrings, for instance. And so we look at that in regards to the the types of ellipse that they might have and everything else. It's a wonderful question, one that we really could spend a lifetime uh, talking about. And it's something that people have spent lifetimes talking about, just looking at, uh, my gosh, go to the ballet and, and look at, uh, there's a marvel, if you want to have a heel strike, which is really cool, if you want to look at uh, Sleeping Beauty, uh, it's a wonderful ballet it's an old ballet and uh interesting music and the best choreography was done by um nuriev who did the choreography for the national ballet of canada uh, did that choreography and they've got this wonderful aspect where they pass uh the sleeping beauty from suitor to suitor and she's on toe for this whole thing and just does this aspect, they turn her, it's one of the most amazing uh, choreographies you've ever seen, and there's no heel strike, but there's great heel strike on the suitor. So I look at that sort of dichotomy of function and generation of force abnormally from toe to heel, and it, it becomes absolutely uh, majestic. So my eyes are bobbling, you know, just watching that type of activity. Well, that, that's no. what I do in regards to that question without giving you a, a formalized lecture and that's going to maybe put some people that are not so excited about human movement to to sleep you know professor i remember i don't know if you remember it but uh there was one grand rounds patient where there was something about their vestibular ocular response to heel strike and part of the therapy was hitting the patient's heel do you remember that case at all uh, see, I do because I watch these tapes. Gosh, I wish I could. And I just always want, I got to review that one with you. But I remember part of the patient's therapy was literally hitting the patient's heel at a specific rhythm. Um, yeah, and you were able to help that. that yeah, yeah. You've been able to help that patient a lot. Yeah. And I remember, and that was one of the first times that I started recognizing the neurological importance of heel strike and its relationship to head, eye, vestibular movements. You right. know, and I, it was kind of one of those things I go, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that connection. Yeah, we mimic those things, and I can't recall one specific patient, but I can recall a lot of them where the, when you look at, the, at a heel and it strikes and you have to maintain balance, the, you can generate the same force when they're not maintaining balance. So it's almost like a dynamic uh, Romberg, if you would. So oftentimes, I will generate force activity into the heel when they don't have to balance. And when someone's had a concussion or whether they're aged, you've got a variety of things that, that happen. Being able to stand up without falling is something we take for granted. Until you start getting older or your mind starts to go or you have frontal lobe lesions. And then people have a hard time because more energy is generated just to keep you up uh, from falling than it is to do other things. So then cognitive functions decrease or you can't walk and chew gum at the same time the dual tasking so in these sorts of cases if you've seen one patient you know other people have seen you know sometimes 
I do it a lot. Sometimes I won't do it for a month or so. I will take and I'll, and I'll, you know, bang the heel and I'll look at what happens when they're not weight bearing to see things. I'll give them different rhythms. Sometimes I'll do it if I want to change a gait with the hip externally rotated and I'll do it. Or if I have someone who's had a circumduction sort of a gait, uh, uh, I'll come in and I'll externally rotate their hip and I'll start to give them a different aspect. Uh, that has really great ther therapeutic consequences. We're talking out of isolation, but if we look at an actual patient, when you see I'm doing it, people go like, what the hell? All of these people get up and they're walking like, like they never walked before. And you go like, what the hell? Why did he, you know, whack him on the knee? Or why did he kick him in the pants? Or why did he do this? Uh, you start to understand why it makes sense. And, and sometimes um, I'm usually pretty good. I don't usually do things that I don't expect to work, but I can give you an infinite number of examples when I do something that definitely doesn't work or, or makes them worse. And I'll tell the patient, I go, well, that definitely wasn't good for you. I'm not gonna do that again. Or you'll say, okay, do saccades target. That's probably what you need. All of a sudden I try it and it's not good for them. I go, we can't do that. What I would normally do, we can't do. And the reason I know it is because things go wrong. And then you gotta, you always have to have your, your escape hatch. So in our job, when you do any therapy, you've always got to know how to take it back, and, which means that you've got to be graded in what you're doing and uh, realize that what you could be doing could be wrong. Um, the idea is to make it less and less a chance, but as you're aggressive, you're going to make mistakes. If somebody doesn't do things that are wrong, then they're not pushing the envelope because, um, People are going to demand that you make an error because if you're not going for it, you're not hitting that backhand. You know, you're, you're going to lose the match. I don't like to lose it, so I'm going to make errors. So every time I do something, I'm always thinking of what I'm going to do to compensate for the evil that I do as a consequence of my mistake. And uh, I think that's a good, well, it's a good lesson for me because I'm ready for bad stuff. Every time I do anything, I'm ready for bad stuff. So my therapy gets a little graduated and I go, wow, great. I know, you know, I can throw them in the deep end. They're not going to drown on me. Uh, you know, whereas other people, I, I just want the toes tickling the pool water, you know? I totally get it. Well, professor, thank you very much. Uh, so again, some very great shares. I really appreciate it. I think that'll wrap up, wrap up this, uh, this volume of Ted and Fred's excellent adventure. Um, we have more questions coming, so we're going to get together again and we'll keep going. Is that okay? Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thank you, Professor. We'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on caricinstitute.com.